If you recall, when we looked at the pre-Socratic philosophers and we came to the tension between Parmenides and Heraclitus, I mentioned that what happened was that after the impasse between those two giants in philosophy, a period of skepticism and this worldlyism came into that vacuum that threatened the very fabric of civilization and how that Socrates stepped into that vacuum and sought to restore sober sanity to theoretical thought. And I also mentioned in passing that that impasse sort of thing happens with a kind of cyclical regularity in the history of Western thought. And I mention it for this reason, that I happen to believe we're in one of those periods right now, a period of skepticism and the degeneration of theoretical thought. Well, after the real titans of the ancient world, Plato and Aristotle ended up in tension, another period of skepticism came into vogue where philosophers turned their attention away from searching for ultimate truth, thinking that the quest for metaphysics was basically a fool's errand, and again turned their attention to concrete matters of this world. And so we had a revival of skepticism among the Greeks, and along with that revival of skepticism, we saw the emergence of the two most important philosophies that followed after Aristotle, namely Stoicism and Epicureanism. And I'm not going to treat those two philosophies other than to say in passing that as different as they were, they shared a common desire, and that was to find the secret of living the happy life, how to live and gain what they called philosophical ataraxia or peace of mind. And they're important for this reason, that they're the only schools of philosophy that are explicitly mentioned in the New Testament where when Paul visited Athens, the cultural center of the ancient world, he encountered representatives from the school of Stoicism and from the Epicureans. But the really important movement that came to pass during these days was the origin of the Christian church and the widespread domination of Christian theology. In fact, there are historians, in fact, secular historians who have argued that in the midst of this vacuum, this second cycle of pessimism and skepticism that arose after Aristotle and Plato, that again civilization was threatened, and the only thing that saved it was the advent of Christianity, which once again brought attention to ultimate truth and gave a sound intellectual basis for understanding the world in which we live. And in this regard, some have argued that the most important philosopher between Aristotle and, say, Plotinus in the third century A.D. was the Apostle Paul. But we don't normally think of Paul as a philosopher. He was more engaged with missionary activity as a preacher and as an evangelist, and as a theologian. But in any case, between the death of Aristotle and the beginning of the third century, Christianity is dominating the intellectual climate. 
And Platonism has pretty much fallen by the wayside, but it has by no means become extinct. And in the third century, we see a kind of rebirth or renaissance of ancient Platonic thought in a movement that was called Neo-Platonism. And as you know, the prefix neo means new. And what the Neo-Platonists wanted to do was to reconstruct ancient Platonism, but to make certain changes and adaptations to account for the impact of Christianity. Some of the radical ideas that were introduced by Christian thought into the world of ideas were, first of all, the idea of the absolute singular person. Now, Aristotle had given us an absolute singular concept with his idea of God as the unmoved mover. But Christianity and Judaism had brought into the forefront the idea of the ultimate solution to the ancient questions of philosophy, of the searching for ultimate reality, the arche, the chief truth, and the solution to the question of motion and the solution to the question of life, were found in the Judeo-Christian concept of God, who is the absolute, eternal, personal Creator, in whom we live and move and have our being. Now, the idea of a creation by a voluntary action of an eternal being was something the Greeks did not have in their philosophy. Even with Aristotle, Aristotle's idea of God was a God who eternally moves things but does not create them out of nothing. Now, we'll explore that in more detail pretty soon when we get to the thinking of the great Saint Augustine. But for now, let's just notice in passing that the idea of the absolute singular and the idea of the Trinitarian concept of God were radical innovations to theoretical thought, because the Trinity now gives us the idea of absolute oneness with whom, within that unity, there is eternal diversity, so that the one and the many come together in the Christian concept of God. Thirdly, the other notion that became so vitally important to the future of theoretical thought was the Christian philosophy of history. The world is something that is created by God, it has a beginning, and not only does it have a beginning, but it has a terminal point, and it is moving in the direction of a divinely ordained blueprint. So that history is not cyclical that just goes on and on and on and on, having no beginning and no end, but history is part of the creation of this absolute singular God, who not only starts things going like an unmoved mover, but who maintains sovereignty 
over His creation and over the events of history. In other words, the concept of divine providence by which God is totally committed to this world and this time was in many ways a radical thought for the ancient mind. Now, it's against this background that we see the entrance of Neoplatonism. And there were many distinguished thinkers who are under the category of Neoplatonists, but the founder of this movement was a man by the name of Plotinus. And Plotinus lived in the third century, born around 203, died around 270. Now, when Plotinus developed his form of philosophy, which was an attempt to restructure and reconstruct Plato, he did it as a conscious alternative to Christianity. He was aware of the widespread influence of Christian thought. He opposed Christian thought at the intellectual level and saw it as fallacious and had destroyed the brilliance of Plato's contribution to the world. And so he sought to come up with a philosophical alternative to Christianity. Now, many of the features that we find in his philosophy show certain stark similarities to a movement that began earlier that the Christian church had to confront in its earliest days, which was the heresy of Gnosticism, which was a syncretistic religion that blended together all sorts of ideas from Oriental dualism, Persian mysticism, Greek philosophy, and a little dab of Christianity in it. But we're going to leave that aside for the sake of time in this and look more specifically at Neoplatonism. Plotinus did not reject rationality, but believed that the highest source of knowledge was through mystical intuition. In fact, the only real avenue to ultimate truth came through mystical experience. And there were very few people who were gifted with mystical intuition who were part of what we might call here the mystical elite. Now, it's at this point that we see one clear point of contact with earlier Gnosticism, because the Gnostics repudiated the ordinary ways of knowing through reason and sense perception and believed that the only true way of knowing God or ultimate truth was through some kind of direct, immediate intuition that only a few gifted people had who were the Gnosticoi, those who were, quote, in the know. So we see a similarity there between Gnosticism and Plotinus at this point. But for Plotinus, the good life, the virtuous life, is the life of the mystic who makes a pilgrimage along life's way from being preoccupied with the physical world, where most people spend their lives just as materialists. Their whole life is focused on things, on things that you can handle, taste, touch, see, and hear, and that sort of thing. And he said that the first step beyond that is to the contemplative life, whereby the mind rises above the shadowy cave of Plato, 
where people are locked into the world of material things, the world of the receptacle. Remember, Plato wanted us to get out of the cave of sense perception and into the realm of the mind, where contemplation is the highest source of truth. Well, Plotinus adds a new dimension to this, that there's still another stage after that, and it is the stage of mystical union. Now, how does this fit with Christianity? You read the New Testament, and there are obviously elements of mysticism found within it. Paul's up in the third heaven, and Paul talks about our union with Christ, what we would call the mystical union of the believer with Christ, and so on. But there's a different kind of thinking in historic Christian mysticism from what we find in these ancient philosophies. For the ancient mystic, this stage of progression, this movement, this pilgrimage that I've talked about, that begins with sense perception or sensation, and then moves through contemplation, and then moves to what the mystics call communio, which is a being with God, a communion with God. We talk in Christian theology about the communion of the saints in the sense in which we have fellowship with each other, not only with those who are alive, but with those who are part of the church, past, present, and future, and so on. But that's more or less the end of the road for Christian mysticism. The highest form of mysticism is to have this mystical communion with God but not so with Plotinus and other mystics. The next stage is unio, where you become one with God. Now, this is a common feature in Eastern religions, where the goal of your religious experience is to lose your personal identity, to become one with the oversoul. And so often you'll hear the illustration of the drop of water that falls into the ocean that loses its identity as it becomes absorbed into the whole of things. Now, this is significant for Plotinus because of his concept of God. For Plotinus, God is called the One, with a capital O, Hohen, the One, where he calls God one in such a way that would suggest a pure pantheism. But most experts who study Plotinus say that Plotinus was not really your garden variety pantheism. In fact, he tried to avoid pantheism and at the same time avoid Christianity. But still the highest being is called the One. Now here's the problem. You can't know the One. The one escapes all possible knowledge of what it is or who it is. And the important introduction to philosophy, though he wasn't the first one to do this actually, but the emphasis for Plotinus was to introduce a way of knowing which he called the via negationis, sometimes called the via negativa, but it means the way of negation. 
by describing things, and in this case God, simply by saying what God is not. Now, historic Christianity makes use of this to some degree. Some of the things that we say about God employ the way of negation. When we say, for example, that God is infinite or invisible or immutable, what are we saying? We're saying that He's not finite, He's not visible, and that He's not mutable. We're just simply saying what He isn't. We are finite, visible, and mutable, and at this point, when we use these words to describe the attributes of God, we're saying this is a way in which God is different from us. He's not visible like you are visible. He's not mutable like you are mutable. He's not finite like you are finite. So we use the way of negation. But that's not all we use. But for now, let's see how it functions with Plotinus. To give you a feel for the thinking of Plotinus, I'm going to read a somewhat lengthy quote from his hand, which is something I don't normally do when I teach, is read quotations. But this, is, this one, I think, gives such a clear flavor of where Plotinus was coming from that I think you will enjoy it. He says this, The intelligence is a thing and belongs to real being. The one, with a capital O, is not anything, but prior to all things. Neither is it a kind of real being. Real being possesses a character comparable to shape, the intelligible shape of the real. But the one is not shapen even by intelligible shape. For that principle which generates all things cannot be anything of them at all. It is not a thing, it's not quality, it's not quantity, it's not intelligence, nor soul. It does not move, and yet it is not at rest. It is neither in space nor in time. It is the uniform absolute, or rather the formless. Now remember Aristotle called God pure form. For Plotinus, God is formless, because He's prior to all form, and prior to motion, and prior to rest. For these last are characters of real being, and make reality manifold. If it be asked why the one having no movement is not at rest, we answer, because only a being, or only to a being, must one or both of these predicates apply. Any being that we conceive of must either be at rest or in motion. But if the one is not a being, then neither the categories of rest or motion apply to it. A stationary object is at rest, but it is not rest, and so also if the one be at rest, rest would be added to it as an accident, and it would no longer remain simple. Even to name it the cause is to predicate an accident, not of the one, but of ourselves. It signifies that while the one abides within itself, we have nothing derived from it. He that would speak exactly, now listen, must not name it by this name or by that. We can but circle, as it were, about its circumference, seeking to interpret it in speech or in our experience, now shooting near the mark, but again disappointed of our aim by reason of the antinomies or contradictions found within it. 
Now, you can't believe how many philosophers and theologians since Plotinus have employed this kind of approach to an understanding of God. In our day, we think of Paul Tillich, who's one of the most important theologians of the 20th century, who said that God is not being, He is the ground of being. And Tillich, I remember lecturing to students on one occasion, said that God is neither personal nor impersonal, but is the ground of personality. Now, what he was getting at is that personality or impersonality can only be predicated of beings. But if God's not a being but the ground of being, then these terms don't apply. And one student raised their hand and said, Dr. Tillich is the ground of personality, personal or impersonal. <laughs> and Tillich got all exercised at him for saying that. I mean, it's the same kind of way of speaking that we're finding here in Plotinus. And obviously, the question one has to ask is, what is the difference between the one who is not being or a being and nothing? That's the real question. And I think that we have to come to the conclusion that his God, in the final analysis, is nothing. But this God who is unknowable emanates from his own oneness the different levels of reality that we find in this world, the reality of mind, the reality of soul, the reality of matter, another point of contact with the worldview of the early Gnostics. And the farther away you get from the one, the lowest level of emanations that proceed from him is matter, or the physical, which becomes for Plotinus the principle of evil. Well, one of the most important influences of Plotinus in the history of philosophy is the influence he had on St. Augustine because Augustine was converted to Neoplatonism in his earlier years. And then when he became a Christian, he became the chief critic of the ancient world of Neoplatonism. So we'll look at him in our next study.